Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with collector, historian, and author Jeff Yeager about his history in muzzleloading, his passion for history, Indiana history here specifically, then also what it took and, and kind of the process behind the publishing of multiple of Jeff's books that he's worked on and his own book, Indiana Gunmakers. This is going to be a really interesting episode, I think, if you're just interested in history and then some of the research and the documentation that goes into finding out kind of almost lost information and, and bringing it to the public eye like Jeff has. Uh, we're going to go through quite a few different eras here, but it's really, I think, going to be a good episode. I hope you enjoy it. Jeff, I'd like to thank you for, for talking with us here today. Could you let us know and, and kind of get us started by talking a little bit of how about how you got your start in muzzleloading? Well, sure. I, I think that uh, the best place for me to start is, is really with my childhood, because I think my childhood had a pretty profound effect on, on, on where I am today as far as my hobby and my passion of history and, and collecting goes. So hmm. I grew up in, in northeast Wisconsin, kind of in the sticks, a small farming community called Reedsville. We had 750 people in our community. We were surrounded by farmers where I grew up. We lived three miles outside of town and on the edge of a woods. And I was pretty secluded from the collecting world. Mm. You know, long rifles, we didn't see them in Wisconsin in my childhood. What did have an impact on me was uh, the TV show. And, and I know that you hear this often because I, I hear it on your podcast that Fess Parker and Daniel Boone played a, a very important yeah. role in, in, in a lot of people's lives. And, and, and my life was no exception. So that TV series where Fess Parker portrayed Daniel Boone was, was a favorite after school TV program. Hmm. And, and that, that ran for about seven years or so from about, 64 to about 1970. Okay. And, and when would you have started watching that? How old and, and what grade, I guess, would that have well, been for you? I, um, I probably would have started uh, uh, watching it probably shortly after it started. So I was born in 60 and that series started in 64. Okay. And so I probably, as a four, I can't pinpoint the exact year, but I probably started watching it when it started. Wow! <laughs> uh, and 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 I, I really got intrigued with our um, American history at the time. Mm -hmm. That really stuck with me, and, and even to this day, I think about that uh, television program with Fess Parker and Patricia Blair, and Ed Ames was there, and I learned about the opening of uh, Kentucky. And I learned, you know, that Daniel Boone carried that long rifle, that flintlock rifle with him wherever he went. And I was intrigued by the rifle then, but I never saw him where I grew up. I didn't know they existed hmm. uh, um, at that point, um, you know, and, and, and even growing up into my teens. And, and I was hunting with shotgun um, pretty regularly. But I didn't know those old rifles um, still existed. Even with no. the bicentennial coming around there, was it just not uh, very active in, in Wisconsin for that time? It wasn't exposed to me. Okay. I, I, I didn't get exposed to it. Uh, and, and look, I... You know, I spent a lot of my time outdoors, mm -hmm. and um, even as a youngster, I was out hunting. 
it was it was hunting with starting out with a pellet gun and then a 22 and and, and somewhere around the age of 12 or 13 I got my first shotgun a little single shot 20 gauge and then graduated to a, a Remington 870 wingmaster and, and I wore that thing out uh, hunt, hunting ducks and and pheasant and and even squirrel and rabbit, we did it a lot. Yeah, and and and, and people in Northeast Wisconsin. I mean, my peers hunted. That's what we did. And and if it was, if we weren't hunting, we were involved in football. Of course, the Green Bay Packers were big back then, mm-hmm. and and so they were always in the news. And and we played football if we weren't hunting. That was kind of my childhood. And look, my my dad wasn't a hunter at all, but my older brother was, and uh, my brother kind of taught me how to hunt and his older friends taught me how to hunt. I've, I fell in love with the outdoors, but it was modern stuff. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't the old muscle loader by <laughs> any means. But you were still no. uh, participating in, in very similar activities, wouldn't you say, that uh, of yes. you know the frontiersmen that you were looking up to at the time, even if it was the, the Fess Parker interpretation of it. You were that, still out that, there hunting just like him. He, Exactly. So when, when I was out there hunting, we were on the edge of the woods and when I'd go into the woods, I was Daniel Bowie, you know, (laughs) at at those young ages. Yeah. And, and, and there's no doubt about it. He was, he was in the back of my mind. Yeah. So, um, that TV show and, and the place I grew up, um, and my ability to go out hunting, whether it would be with friends or, or alone, I was on the frontier. Yeah. Yeah. You just no had doubt. that feeling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In my mind, I was in the frontier. Yeah. What do you think uh, drew you to that? Was it, is that just the kind of thing that a, a young boy during that period, that's what they were looking for? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you were just drawn to that? Or do you think it was partly your older brother being going, you know, going out and doing that stuff? You know, you kind of had two role models to play off of there. That's right. My older brother had a big impact and, and, and I watched him and um, his excitement and his passion for hunting and, and the friends that he had around him uh, and their passion for hunting. Um, man, that's just what we did. Hmm. And, uh, um, and, and again, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but um, if I wasn't doing that, I was uh, active in sports and primarily in football, even right. from a young age. I mean, in fourth grade, I was playing organized football. Wow. <laughs> fl- fl- it was flag football. Right. Yeah. You know, until I got to high school, then then it became uh, tackle football. And, and my high school was small. So, look, they needed every able body out on that field, um, huh. you know, playing football. And I got to play a lot of football because I went to a small school. Huh. So. Um, football and hunting was it, uh, uh, when I grew up. So you, as a young boy grew up hunting, playing sports, you're very active, very outdoors. What happened then, you know, kind of after that, uh, not to call it a sure. phase, but that, that era of your life and, and how did that transition into, uh, kind of the muzzleloading side of things that we're here to talk about. When I was, my, my father was a school teacher, high school teacher. He, he was one of my high school teachers and um, he had um, the knowledge of how to operate a camera. And his camera was a, an old viewfinder camera that the press used to use to take press pictures. It was called a, a graphics uh, camera and um, it used 
four by five inch sheets of film or negatives. Mm -hmm. And it was all black and white. And my father was the only one in the school and, and in the village to that knew how to take pictures. And, and he taught me how to take pictures with it. And our high school had a dark room. And so my, I had an interest in it and I had an interest in developing film. And uh, um, my father taught me how to use the dark room. And that, that stayed with me um, through college. I took a photography course. I minored in communication and, and I learned to appreciate the visual arts hmm. um, in that time period. So I'm, I'm still not into muzzle loading. Okay? okay. Even through high school, I'm not into muzzle loading yet. And I went to college and I, uh, I, um, I took a photography class in college and, and um, still not into muzzle loading. I still didn't know these guns existed. Wow. Um, in, in, into college. And, um, after college, I, I looked, when I went to college, I, I lost my hunting ground. So hunting almost stopped for me when I went to college. It just, the land was gone. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I took a job and I focused really on my career. I became a salesman for a large chemical company in Wisconsin uh, and, and they transferred me to Illinois still not okay so now i'm two or three years out of college and i i still have not been um, exposed to muzzle loading hmm. yet and then i came to indiana in 1988 and that move with another company really changed my life and 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 this is where i started a a serious interest in history, especially Indiana history. Yeah. And I, um, I, I, I bought a house near Lafayette, which was only about three miles from, uh, the battleground where, um, uh, the, the, the battle of Tippecanoe was fought. Yeah. And I learned about William Henry Harrison and I learned about Tecumseh. Um, and, and I became really, really intrigued with that. And um, I, then I started to learn about Vincennes and, and the history associated with the, the, the town of Vincennes in, in southwest Indiana. And um, it, shortly after that, um, my wife and I, well, I had just gotten married, and my wife and I took a trip to uh, Asheville, North Carolina. This mm. is pre-kids now. Yeah. And, uh, um, we spent time in an antique shop there and that's where I saw my first antique rifle, my first muzzle loading rifle wow. on the wall of this antique shop. And, and look, something snapped inside of me. It was like, uh, um, I picked that thing up and, um, this was the gun that Daniel Boone carried. I mean, it was like the gun. I knew it right. wasn't the same gun, but it was like the gun and it was long and it was curly maple and the architecture was beautiful and the craftsmanship was um, just something to behold. And um, look, I, I spent the next day in the library across the street um, of Asheville, North Carolina on vacation. And I began reading about the Kentucky rifle or the American long rifle. Wow. and the history associated with it. But that, th that shop owner told me 
he he saw it. He saw it in me. He saw I was really intrigued with this rifle, and he said, "Jeff, you know, there's a whole collector's market out there. I mean, this is a collecting segment in and of itself. These American long rifles, and 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 I was kind of flabbergasted, hmm. and uh, because here I am, I was what I was maybe by this time I'm about 33 years old, and I hadn't been exposed to it. So um, I came back to Indiana and um, started making phone calls and finding out more about the collector world and searched out anybody that would help me, anybody who could help me or give me a lead. Where, where can I find these guns? Where can I see them? Where can I learn about them? And then I started finding books and learning about books. And I started a, a, a small collection of books on the subject. And one of those books was by a guy named Albert Lindert. And Albert Lindert in 1960, in the 60s, had written a book on Indiana gun makers. Now, it was a small book. Um, and Albert Linder did an excellent job for the time. He didn't have fax machines. He didn't have the internet. Right. Uh, he didn't have cell phones. Um, he didn't have, um, um, digital cameras, uh, to share information back and forth. He didn't have any of that. He did everything longhand and by telephone and by visiting, um, history sites in Indiana and um, and historical associations in Indiana collecting his information. And he assembled a book and, 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 and that was the book that really launched me um, into collecting Indiana rifles and studying Indiana gun makers. Okay. So here I am, I'm, I'm in my early thirties before I even knew of muzzle loading. And I'm not the typical collector because most collectors that collect what I collect are muzzle-loading rifles or Kentucky rifles. They've they've seen these rifles from childhood on. Mm -hmm. So I continued my uh, search um, for people that uh, could help or associations that could help. And there was a guy named Kurt Johnson over in Illinois. He was writing a book on Illinois gun makers at the time. Yeah. And uh, I met Kurt at his gun show in Princeton, Illinois. That was probably about 95 or so. He said to me, Jeff, you know, Indiana needs a lot of research and a lot of help on Indiana gun makers. There's a lot out there that are undiscovered. And, And he challenged me to take up the book project. And it was then about 1995 that I did and, and, and made it my, my goal to complete a book on Indiana gun makers. And that's how I got started. Wow. Yeah. It was pretty cool. That's incredible. I want to, I want to go back to Asheville here for just a second. Sure. The, you go into this antique shop and there's a flintlock rifle. Was that, the first time that you had seen one since you were watching Daniel Boone, was this like an intersection yep. of, of childhood Jeff Yeager and adult yes. Jeff Yeager? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I had never picked one up before. I'd never held one. I'd never seen one. I, I, I didn't know they existed. Wow. I really didn't know they existed. 
even even modern uh, muzzle loading. Okay, so where where I grew up, where the deer hunting was, mm-hmm. they use they use modern shotgun, and I don't I don't know any of my peers that used a muzzle loader. Interesting, because you were, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose you could have just missed it, but that was right around when the you know the Thompson Center Hawkins and things really started to to shape. You know, contemporary yep. muzzle loading. That's just fascinating yes. to me. <laughs> that I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My childhood was pretty, uh, uh, I was pretty secluded there in, in Northeast Wisconsin. Yeah. But no doubt about it. You were secluded, but you still held on to it and, and came back to it when, when you saw that rifle. I mean, when you were, when you were telling that story, it gave me goosebumps. You can believe me or not, but <laughs> that was just <laughs> like, wow. I, it's just, that's just so cool to to travel yeah. so far to yeah. connect with that and to connect with it. I mean, we we hear about so often that that people have watched the show or or hunted as kids and then they just kind of left and got out of it. Um, but to hear that you went so long and were able to get into it and come into it with such a passion is just incredible. Yeah. There was something inside of me. There was something, I mean that, uh, and, and I, I believe that there was this passion inside of me. It just wasn't realized. Yes. It was there. I just didn't realize it. Yeah. I call um, that the call is the, is the term okay. that I've come up for. It. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that there's something in us, especially as Americans that we're drawn to that era and to that history. And I think that moment for you in that antique shop, you could not ignore that call anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly right. Uh, it, there's no doubt. Once, once that, um, once that was over, and I came back to Indiana, it was inside of me, and it was exposed, and and it just never stopped. Hmm. It never stopped from from you know the early mid 1990s until now. So I mean, and it's still going strong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, you don't yeah. put out the work that you've been putting out without that being strong for sure. So what was it like coming back to Indiana, which is, you know, especially in the eighties and nineties, kind of a hotbed for muzzleloading with the different uh, associations and different events yes. throughout yes. the state. Was that just like yes. information okay. overload for you or did it take some time to get up to speed with all of them? Oh, 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 well, okay. So I would say both of those. Uh, um, so there was, w- when I started looking around me and started asking questions, there was a tremendous source of information here in Indiana uh, from uh, collectors um, and associations. And the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association was was one of those early associations that, that really um, embraced what I was doing. And, and, and they, or I should say, embraced my questions and they mm. embraced my hobby. And they, um, they allowed me to do things like photograph Indiana guns down there at Friendship. They, they allowed me to exhibit um, um, Indiana rifles yeah. Okay. So, so, so my collection and, and, and my knowledge was still in its infancy, but I was able to put together an assortment of, of 20 or 25 rifles to exhibit at the Rand house there at friendship. 
and um, they gave me a flavor of 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 what an exhibit is, and they allowed me to take control of the exhibit and 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 do my thing hmm. to to be the purveyor of information on on the Indiana gun makers and the and the rifles that were on exhibit. And so all this came about with an association like the NMLRA, but th- th- there were also the people that it was a network of people that had Indiana guns that knew of Indiana gun makers that allowed me to take their rifle down to friendship and put it on exhibit for a week. Right. And so there's a lot of people that understood my passion and were willing to help me. That's wonderful. I and love and that's, that. yeah, that's what it was all about. And, 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 and so uh, here I am, you know, 20, 25 years later and and I realized that all of this comes about because people have the same interest and people want to promote it. And so they're willing to help. All you got to do is be the catalyst and, 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 and make it happen. Hmm. And so um, associations have played a big role. NMLRA is a big one and Kentucky Rifle Association, the same thing. You, you, you talk to their members and their members are, are more than willing to help. They're more than willing to share their knowledge. Um, and, and if you've got something worthy of promoting, they're going to be there with you. Hmm. Um, so I've seen it time and time again. People played a big role. Friends. Uh, and, and look, I could I can name them. There's there's guys like Kurt Johnson I mentioned in, in Illinois. There's. There's a the collector here in, in northern Indiana, Shelby Galeen, has written a book on Kentucky gun makers. In fact, he's written three volumes. Um, and 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 we I've had a quite a relationship with Shelby over the years because uh, um, I found a way to help him in his books and he found a way to help me. Uh-huh. And and he, he he's Shelby's an excellent researcher. And uh, he has a knack for using the internet. He has a knack for for digging documents out of archives and finding information. And um, I had a knack for photography. And so um, I was uh, I made several trips down to Kentucky with Shelby to photograph um, rifles for his books. Hmm. Um, and and they're black and white and some of them are in color in his later volume, but, um, yeah. uh, I photographed probably, oh, I a hundred or more rifles from Kentucky for his books. And, and, and Shelby's had a big hand in, 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 in my latest book on Indiana gun makers from the, the research standpoint. So it's that kind of thing that, that, that really makes it work. People helping people. Yeah. I think that's something that we hear time and time again about muzzleloading is, is there's a community there that is is second to none, really, I think. And each yes. time I hear a story like that, I, I just kind of notch it up a little bit higher because it's, it's the kind of thing that you love to hear that it, even going back to 1995 with Kurt Johnson, he saw your interest. And I was talking to Kurt this past weekend um, at at the June shoot down at friendship. Mm -hmm. And and we talked a little bit about your book and he brought up that he's been 
egging you on a little bit and, and pushing you to make this book happen and about how excited right. he was to hear that it was doing right. well. Oh yeah. 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 Well, it, 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 here's, here's, an, this brings up another really interesting point. You know, when you start a project like this and you tell the other people in muzzleloading that you're going to write a book and they help you, they help you with research. They help you find the guns that you need for the book. They're going to now hold you to it. <laughs> okay. They're not going to let you get away. Just taking that information information and keeping it for yourself. I love that. So, so, so they hold you to your statement and, 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 and that's one thing that kept me going when I would go to Kurt's um, show twice a year over in Illinois, it would always be Jeff. How's the book coming? Have, how much progress have you made? And, and um, that kind of thing um, makes it come to reality. Yeah. That kind so, of, re that reminder, a little yes. prodding here and there, but it, it's good yes. prodding, you know, it's that, Absolutely. that drive. Fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you, yeah. when you started thinking about, you know, doing the, this kind of research and, and the collecting side of it, how did the, your, your skills with, um, you know, cameras and photography, did that just come in as kind of an ancillary skill that worked really well for, for the collecting side of things? Or did you find that that, um, was a driver for you wanting to photograph these works of art? Because you, you mentioned that when you were in college, taking that photography course, you, you learned to understand and appreciate, you know, fine art kind of in that context. So did that yes. come back when you got more it, into collecting? Yes. It, uh, it, it, yes, I would say. And, 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 and I would probably say that visual, that, that, that visual art appreciation never really left me. I, I, I always had, um, I always had that inside of me, uh, from a young age and, and, and then seeing photographs that Kurt Johnson had taken, um, that the publisher, uh, Shumway had taken mm. and seeing the work that they had done. And then it was that friendship. In fact, where, um, Shumway showed me, and Kurt Johnson showed me how photographs were taken, you know, photographs of guns. So, so I could use my dad's camera. I learned how to use my dad's camera, but I, I never took a photograph of a rifle until I, w I went to friendship. Ah, okay. So, so at friendship, here's uh, Mr. Shumway and Kurt Johnson. They were working together on Kurt's book but I would see Shumway photographing and he showed me how to paint the light for these uh, black and white negatives. And we would use a long exposure of, of like 30 seconds really, um, to expose, to expose the, uh, the, the negative. And um, he showed me how to paint the light on the object and then um, I knew how to develop the negative. When I got home, I set up a, a dark room in my basement. And, and then I printed uh, the photographs in my dark room uh, that I put. Uh, it was just a utility room in the basement right. that I turned into a dark room. I love that. So I started printing 
um, I started printing a lot of pictures and spent a lot of time in the dark room. And, and that photography portion of it is really my favorite. The mm. visual portion of the Kentucky rifle is right there alongside with the historic uh, significance of the rifle in, in, in my mind anyway. Yeah. So that's how, that's how photography uh, kind of played with me. And, and, you know, along with that, you know, I, the book that was released here uh, a couple years ago, Indiana Gunmakers, most of the photography is in color, probably mm-hmm. 90% of it. Mm-hmm. But what happened is I spent, I spent almost 20 years photographing these rifles in black and white. Hmm. And I, I made, I, I drove thousands of miles to get these photographs and spent many, many, many hours in the dark room developing the negatives and printing them. And then what happened is digital cameras came out. <laughs> they came out and they were expensive. Yeah. Okay. And I couldn't afford to buy one right away. But finally in 2015, the, the, the prices came down um, gradually. And in 2015, I bought my first digital camera and decided that I'm going to do this all over again. And we're going to do it in color. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so bottom line is I, I found those guns again and I photographed them the second time, but this time I did it in digital color. So when digital came out, the digital first digital cameras weren't very good. They, no, the they're... resolution was not very good yeah. and, and, and they were expensive. You know, it, it, when they first came out of a simple digital camera was, was several thousand dollars to yeah. purchase. And I, I couldn't buy that. Not, not, in, you know, not with my income and my family that I was raising, yeah. it wasn't going to happen. And color printing was extremely expensive, but Digital got better and it got better fast, very, very fast, and it got affordable. And and all of a sudden that eight thousand dollar camera in 2015, I was able to buy for fifteen hundred dollars. So that's when I decided to make the switch. When the camera became affordable and printing a book in color also became affordable because the printing industry was changing rapidly too. Yeah. They were trying to keep up. Yes. 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 So, um, I did it all a second time and, and, and I'm not complaining about that. I'm just stating the fact that technology passed me up. I was doing this too slowly. I mean, I was doing it. I was raising a family. I was working long hours as a salesman and, I was spending a lot of time at church and um, the, the book was, was not the highest on my priority and I wouldn't change that. Yeah. I was, uh, I was going to say, I love the yeah. book. It's one of the, my yeah. favorite books, but all the things that you listed that kept you away from it, I think are, are very important. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They got to come first. And, they did stay first in my life. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, but um, eventually, and look, that's why books take a long time. Okay, a book like this uh, takes a long time because there's a ton of research. There's a lot of photography. 
but it's done. The authors do it in time when their family isn't demanding time from them or their church isn't demanding time or, or their work isn't demanding time. Oftentimes it's on, um, you know, it's on Sunday afternoon or it's, um, a Saturday or it's, uh, or, or vacations are cut short to work on the book. Right. And that's why it takes, uh, that's why it takes decades <laughs> to, to, a, to, to make it happen. It's a little slice here and there. I mean, I would love yes. to be, uh, running through the woods every day with my flintlock, but those, yeah. those few, <laughs> few mornings each year that I get out to do that, you know, <laughs> those are, yeah. that's just how, that's just how it goes. Um, but those, those moments are still all the, the all, uh, very special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I get that. A hundred percent. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. Uh, I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. So that kind of talking about the book kind of leads into the next thing I'd like to talk about it is the book. I, sure. I'm fascinated that it's, it started with Kurt Johnson in 1995. I had no idea. Uh, and I'm all the more fascinated that you photographed everything twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what it took to, to make that book and, and have it published? I mean, uh, to jump back a little bit, Kurt Johnson tells you, you that you need to make a book about Indiana gunmakers. What yeah. did you do then? You, you connected with Shelby to do some research and to kind of tag team some of these items. But where did you start when taking on this project? I had a start and that start came from Albert Lindert. And so Albert Lindert already had a small book on Indiana gunmakers published, but and here's here's the but and here's here's why I think Kurt Johnson spoke up and said what he did. 
that there's work needed on Indiana gun makers. So Albert Linder did a lot of his work by phone and letter. And a lot of the information that he published does not cite his sources. And it, and it doesn't, if, if he does cite his sources, they're not always primary sources. They're, ah. they're, they're secondary sources or they're um, word of mouth. Um, and, and so I kind of went back and studied the, the names in Albert Linder's book and, and tried to find them. Okay. So I tried to find primary sources that listed these guys as gun makers and, and there's a lot of them in that book that I could not find a primary source for information. So I had to back up and, and, and a lot of the names that are printed in Albert Linder's book in the sixties, I took out of my book because I couldn't prove by a primary source that indeed he lived here in Indiana or indeed he made guns. So I backed a lot of those names up, but I still had a list of names from Albert Lindert. And, and the list of names was probably somewhere in the neighborhood. After I, after I deleted some, there's probably a start of about 250 gun makers. Hmm. So that was what I started with. And, and, and I added from there. So now I went to find how do I search for these guys? And, and, and this is where people like Shelby Galeen and Kurt Johnson came in again, because they were writing books and they told me where they find their, their guys. Right. Okay. Right? So, so now you, now I started searching like they searched and, and I found gun makers in the 1850 census of Indiana. Oh, wow. Because it was in 1850 that the census started listing occupations. And so I would, I would find these guys in the um, 1850 census listing. And then um, Kurt Johnson found a lot of his names also in, in state gazetteers or, or business directories, state business directories. They were, it was like a yellow pages for the state Okay, that was printed back in the 1800s. And, and Indiana has, I think, I think there's five or six years that they printed those business directories from about don't, this isn't exact, but from about 1850 to 1870s, um, the, the business directories existed and, and they would list gun makers and silversmiths and furniture makers, plumbers and plasterers and carpenters. Okay. They would list them by occupation hmm. in the business directories and, and the city that they worked. And so, I found uh, um, some of the guys in the uh, business directories. There was other uh, secondary sources, like I would go to uh, historic associations, county historic associations, and I would ask. They would almost always give me leads, and, and I could go to the courthouse then, and I could look up names in courthouse documents, mostly in probate the probate section of a courthouse and the probate section will have wills and deeds mm. listed. They have those archives. And so I would find guys that would will their gunsmithing tools 
to their son, or they would have an auction and it would list all the goods that were sold at his auction. And if gunsmithing tools were listed in there, well, there's a good chance that guy was a gun maker. Right. Then you do a little bit more research on that particular individual and find out, yeah, indeed, he's a gun maker. So it's archives like that. Huh. Now, I had, a, I had a, a, a nice advantage being a salesman, okay? And so okay. I traveled. And I, I've, I've been to these towns where these gun makers lived, and I, I've been to the court, many of the courthouses and to the historical associations. Those, that's where I found a lot of the leads and a lot of the entries, and those are what I call primary resources. Then there are things like um, newspaper ads. And, and again, a lot of historical associations have newspapers that go back to the 1800s. Hmm. Or they have city directories. Okay, and again, they're in the city directory. They would list people by occupation. And, and, and I would pick out a lot of uh, names by uh, city directories. Then there's county histories. And, and every... Every county in Indiana has a history book. <laughs> and a lot of gun makers are listed in the county history books. So I would pick names out of there. Huh. Um, and then later on came the Internet. And uh, the Internet became a wonderful tool also. Uh, sites like Find a Grave. If I had an inkling that somebody was a gun maker here in Indiana, I could go to that site, find a grave, and see if he was listed, see if he's listed, and see if there's information on him that indicated that he was a gun maker. There was Ancestry.com was a big help. Hmm. And, and I could find gun makers on Ancestry.com. <laughs> now, these, these are, you know, the Internet, Albert Lindert didn't have. Right. They're new tools for you to take advantage of. Right. Albert Lindert did a great job for the tools he had, but I was given the fact that I lived right here in Indiana, the fact that I was a salesman and I was traveling, I was going to these towns on a regular basis, and I could now have the Internet and I, I had a fax machine. <laughs> and uh, later on, I had a cell phone. Uh, and, and, and so I had all these tools and um, that allowed, allowed us to find more and, and allowed us to dig deeper on the names that Albert Lindert had, too. Right. So that's, that's how it came about. <sighs> that's fascinating. I, so, I love to hear that you were... <laughs> It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like you were double dipping a little bit when you were in these towns. You were, you were working and then you were, you, on your lunch break, you were going to the courthouse. To... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> always on the lunch break. Always on the lunch break. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, this is, this is how I look when you're a salesman, at least in my industry, we didn't punch clocks. And so I... The, the, the old adage is that my employer would tell me is, Jeff, you can work any 70 hours a week you want to. That's how flexible we are. Any 70 hours you want to, you can work. And so I chose not to work sometimes during the day, in the middle of the day. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that so much. <laughs> and, 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 and look, I, uh, my employer never suffered. Right. Yeah. Throughout this process, I uh, look at my um, I have a great sales history. 
Um, and, and I never stole time from my employer. I really didn't. This, uh, um, this time was uh, uh, my time and my family's time, but it was convenient for me uh, to be there and to look these things up in the courthouse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in 2015, then to talk a little bit more about the book, just because I love hearing about how s- stuff like this happens. 2015, okay. the camera that you're looking for becomes affordable. Yeah. What was the process like of, of watching the prices of cameras and weighing that against all of the work for photographing these pieces that you'd already done? I mean, years and years and years of effort. It didn't happen overnight. I made it sound like it happened overnight. It wasn't just 2015. I saw this happen gradually over years, but it was about 2015 that I made the decision to buy that camera and to redo it all. And the decision really didn't come hard. Quality of the photographs all of a sudden became so much better, exponentially better it wasn't a difficult decision. And, and look, it's, it's not like the photography was for not the black and white. I didn't throw that away. Okay. okay. I still have all those negatives. I still have them filed and they'll last almost forever. Yeah. So all the negatives are still here um, in my archive and they became a great resource for me. And the other thing about photographing all this time is I was able to get into collections. I was able to handle a lot of Indiana rifles. And when you handle the rifles, you learn. Handling is learning. You learn with your, learn to feel them, to pick them up. Uh, you know, how heavy are they? How balanced are they? And, and you, you can feel the architecture and you can, uh, see and feel the the craftsmanship that go into them, and you can learn about them. And all that time I was photographing, I was learning. Uh, and so nothing, it wasn't like I was throwing this away. It was a process that helped me along the way. And look, the, the digital photography is really quite simple. Once you learn the uh, the recipe of, of light that's needed on the gun with your camera in your darkroom, it becomes a lot, lot easier than black and white film that needs to be developed in the darkroom and then needs to be printed in the darkroom. The process goes so much quicker. And, 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 and now the photographs are just all run through Photoshop on, on the computer where I can take out the background and the background is a, a stark white or black. It's really, really quick and simple compared to what it used to be. I think it, so it, it, it gives you a, a very pure look at the rifle in that yes. instance, I think, being able to subtract everything else out. I mean, we've all seen pictures of, you know, a really nice gun on somebody's bed and you can see their toes at the bottom. In it. <laughs> yes. And, and it's still yeah. wonderful to see that rifle, but the, the being able to go through and adjust those things, it, it's something that I do all the time because yes. you can, you can see things and you can really focus on that piece. Like it's a painting, you know, it's, it, you remove all the noise and you can see it in that frame as the artwork that it is today. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, 
I'll, I'll, I'll add this to the, um, the photography equipment, if even in black and white, if, if you, if I would have gone out and bought everything new, it would have, it would have been a lot of money, but everything like my first black and white camera, um, uh, I think was a 50, I think I probably paid $50 for it and it was 30 years old right. when I bought it. Yeah. And, um, the light that I used was just an incandescent light bulb on a, on the end of a stick with a shade on it. And, and, and that's all the equipment I needed. Well, a white screen behind the gun, but that's it. And then when I went digital, I bought, again, I bought used equipment that a retiring photographer wanted to dispose of. I mean, he wanted to get rid of it and he sold it to me pennies on the dollar. Wow. And so that's the only way that I could really afford. It's one way that helped me go digital Yeah. because the lighting was very inexpensive uh, for me. If I would have bought it new again, it would have been several thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, that adds um, up quick the, these days. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's um that's kind of the photography end of it mm. and, and i still do it today i'm not done by any means in fact just just um this last week um i photographed uh for an individual that's speaking at the kra and putting a present presentation on out in pittsburgh or not pittsburgh near pittsburgh mm. um for the kentucky rifle association and so the photography really comes in handy. Yeah. And I think in that way, you are, you are giving back the way that, uh, that your mentors and the people that helped you helped you uh, get, sure. get where you're at. You're now in that community offering the value that you can to, to help others. I love to hear that. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think so too. I mean, that, that, you're exactly right. It's, it's, <laughs> That's really a key point that you said. Um, as you're building uh, uh, this book, people are giving to you constantly. It can't be done without other people's help. Mm. And, um, and, and, and now it becomes more, when I take on a project, it's not what, what is this project going to do for me or what am I going to get out of it? It's, right. It becomes, what can I do to help the organization? Yeah. Um, or what can I do to help muzzle loading in general? Or what can I do to help a budding collector? And so we give our time um, and we give, we teach people and we give it back. And, that's kind of how I, uh, how I operate to this day. So at what point then you you've, you're working on the Indiana Gunmakers book, you kind of become known within the community, you know, for going after this mission at, at what point, And then how did you get involved with the recognition of the Indiana state rifle? It would have been, it would have been, let me think about the dates. Now I became affiliated with, Jim and Carolyn Dressler in the, the probably 
I'm going to say about 96 or 97, when a collector's association was formed here in Indiana. And that association is called the Indiana Antique Arms Collector's Association. And it was a group of guys, about 25 guys back then that 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 had interest in collecting antique arms. And it wasn't just muzzleloaders. It was it was Winchesters and it was bayonets and it was powder horns and it was Revolutionary War and it was Civil War and uh, and so on. Yeah. It was a diverse bunch of guys, but we would get together maybe a half a dozen times a year. And we started this organization back in, I think it was probably 96 or 97 that that happened. And Jim Dressler was one of those guys. Jim was was a very unique individual in that he was so giving of his knowledge and his time. And he built a museum there next to his business in Bargersville, Indiana, which is just uh, 20 miles south of Indianapolis. Jim Dressler, mm, I don't want to say discovered, maybe that's the wrong word, but he started collecting uh, John Small rifles. Ah. And he was able to buy two rifles and a pistol, a tomahawk and a powder horn, uh, a powder horn that was attributed to John Small. And and uh, uh, Jim was really, really intrigued with um, this golden age gunmaker from Vincennes. Yeah. And, and, and started collecting history and photographs of his work. And um, Jim wanted a book on John Small. He had a few years earlier published a book on powder horns. And um, hired a photographer to put this beautiful book out there on on engraved powder horns. And now he wanted a book on John Small. <laughs> and he knew I had an interest in Indiana gunmakers, and he knew I, um, I I knew how to operate a camera because I had photographed his John Small um, guns for for my book. Yeah. And. Um, he and Carolyn came to me one day and, 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 and just put out this offer, Jeff, we, you know, I want, I want to do a book. Will you help me? And, um, I said, yeah, <laughs> I will. I was writing another book, but Jim wanted to do a book on John small. Well, there, John small was an Indiana gunmaker, so it wasn't completely foreign to what I was doing. Right. There, and, there was and, some benefit to you too, to be involved. Uh, Absolutely. Huh. And, and so, so I took on the project and, and, and I told Jim and Carolyn that, look, I, <laughs> I didn't know what writing a book entailed at the time. Yeah. All right. So I told them I could get it done probably in two, two and a half years. Well, it took five years to get it done and, and partially uh, it was because of my work. Right. Uh, 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 but um, whatever. Um, it took <laughs> about five years to accomplish it. But uh, uh, that was my first foray into uh, the book world was, was with the help of, of Jim and Carolyn Dressler. Hmm. And, and we did a book on John Small. And um, I, was, I, was, I was really thrilled to be involved. And like you said, um, I learned a lot about Indiana gunmakers while I was uh, researching John Small. 
and 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 so I went down to I made trips down to Vincennes to the library, and, and I I met a guy named Richard Day, and Richard Day is um, Mr. Vincennes as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> he, he had written a book called The Pictorial History of Vincennes, um, and he was the guy. He was the go-to guy when it came to uh, Indiana gun makers uh, around Vincennes. And so I remember going down to uh, Richard Day one, it would have been like March. And uh, there was a light snow on the ground and Richard's office was in the second floor. It was like a loft of a log building there in Vincennes. It was a historic building Hmm. on on one of the historic sites and his office was in the loft and it was freezing cold in there and and there Richard Day was in his winter jacket working at his desk. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 I I I almost chuckled I almost chuckled when I first met him. Uh but he he was uh uh he was he was totally serious and that's just how he worked. And uh I told him why I was down there and, and, and I had photographs of John small rifles from Jim Dressler's collection with me. And I showed them to Richard day and Richard day hadn't seen that before. And, and he was really intrigued with the photographs and that there was a collector out there that had that owned a John small rifle hmm. or rifles. Yeah. And so I shared the pictures with him and he opened up his files to me. Wow. And and he shared with me Knox County history like like you wouldn't believe. And I <laughs> I, I um you know again it was a great um it was a great instance of I'll help you if you help me. Yeah. Uh type of thing. And um um Richard Day uh helped with the book and 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 uh Jim Dressler uh, included his name on the back of the book and Richard Day wrote the foreword for the book, yeah. um, which is called um, John Small of Vincennes, Gunsmith on the Western Frontier. So that was uh, that was my foray into John Small. So that book uh, was completed. And then um, Grossland contacted me shortly thereafter. Ah, and, okay. And, and and so now Grossland Grossland which Grossland is the the home of former US president William Henry Harrison. And 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 that brick home is located on the east bank of the Wabash River in Vincennes. And that home was completed in 1804 in Indiana territory. Hmm. And that's where, uh, William Henry Harrison lived for, um, a number of years, but, um, Grossland a few years earlier had purchased a John small rifle at auction and they brought it home to Vincennes and, and, and they displayed it in the home of William Henry Harrison. So Grossland asked me to come down and, and speak at their annual um, annual banquet and okay. speak about John small and speak about the book. Well, shortly after that, um, there was a state Senator, 
um, that that had the Vincennes region. Okay. And his name was John Waterman. And, and John still lives down there. He's retired now, but he still lives down there. John Waterman was a state senator, and he got the idea because he was involved in state legislation, and he had been watching what was happening in Pennsylvania. And, and Pennsylvania had attempted to make the Pennsylvania long rifle their state rifle. But Pennsylvania's legislation didn't pass. And John Waterman got the idea from Pennsylvania. Okay. And, 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 and he had the idea of making this John Small rifle the Indiana State Rifle. And, and he became the architect along with a, uh, an attorney here in Indianapolis who, who, uh, who knew some... Who, who knew Grouseland and also had political ties in Indianapolis. Okay. And I forget his name. I, I think it's Mark Palmer. But um, they hatched the idea, and John Waterman wrote the legislation in 2012, and Mitch Daniels signed it into law that um, this John Small rifle would become the official rifle of the state of Indiana. And, and Indiana became the first in the nation to have a state rifle. Now, there was, there's a footnote to that. We weren't the first to have a state firearm. Okay. Both Utah, Utah and Arizona had pistols. Um, the Colt Peacemaker and the uh, Model 1911. Ah. But Indiana... Indiana got the first rifle. <laughs> so, and it's a Kentucky rifle at that. Right. I mean, it's, so, it's kind of the best, you know? <laughs> you, oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. So that's how I became, that's how I was involved. The, the, the book was used by John Waterman as a visual selling tool to his peers in the, in, in, in the, in the state Senate. Oh, Okay. And he carried that book with him in his briefcase or had it on his desk for a long time. Wow. And, and, and I know that from because I emailed him and I got an email back from his assistant telling me so. <laughs> so um, that, was, that was my contribution. I don't take credit for the state rifle. I take, uh, I, take um, I was happy to provide the visual for it. Right. I mean, that's got to feel good that that book, I mean, especially maybe as a salesman <laughs> was used to, yeah. to sell this idea to the legislature and, and to make this, I mean, historically significant thing pass to, to recognize this yeah. history. It's a feel, it's a feel good thing. There's no doubt about it. I was elated when I got the phone call telling me uh, what had happened and, and, and look, all the, all this while that that legislation was in progress, I knew nothing about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't know anything about it until I got the phone call. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and look, I, it, I'm, I might be jumping ahead here a little bit, but it was, it was that invitation to Grouseland that be, be, began the relationship uh, 
that is now leading to more opportunities with Grouseland. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about yeah. that. That's where I was headed. So you're okay. you're right okay. where I'm at, man. Okay. Good deal. So uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit here. There's a there's another um, gentleman that you know very well named Mel Hankla, that's very involved in. Um, Americana and history and promoting the long rifle. And Mel is um, from Kentucky and um, is very involved with collectors associations, uh, particularly in this, in this case, the Contemporary Long Rifle Association and the Kentucky Rifle Association. Mm -hmm. And Mel was chosen this year or asked to set up an exhibit at the NRA convention that was held in Indianapolis earlier this spring. Mm -hmm. And so Mel's idea of, of the exhibit was to um, promote arms and affiliated accoutrements, affiliated artifacts from the War of 1812, in particular, three battles, the Battle of Tippecanoe, the Battle of Thames, and then there was uh, um, the one in Ohio also, the uh, Fort Meigs, mm. the siege of Fort Meigs. And, and, and so um, Mel promoted those three battles in the exhibit. And... Um, mm he had a significant collection already to, to display at the exhibit, but he had an idea. And um, he called me and said, Jeff, you have a, a relationship with Grouseland. Is that right? And I said, yeah. And, and he said, Jeff, what do you think would happen if I asked Grouseland to loan us some of their artifacts for the exhibit, hmm. some of the William Henry Harrison artifacts for the exhibit at the NRA convention. And I thought, Mel, I thought, it, I thought it's a great idea. And I think we ought to ask them. And so I called Grouseland and I spoke with the director, Lisa Ice Jones is, is the director of, of Grouseland. And, and, and I, I ran it by her verbally and, and, and she, she agreed to have a meeting and Mel and I went and, and met her at Grouseland and we met right there in the, uh, in the room where William Henry Harrison would receive Indian chiefs and William Henry Harrison would receive his uh, political associates and, and um, his friends uh, right there in, in, in the big receiving parlor. And, and the three of us met there uh, right alongside the fireplace and Mel laid out his plan. Hmm. And, and Lisa Ice Jones thought, man, this is a great opportunity. <laughs> and, um, you know, she, she knows how big the NRA convention is. Yeah. And how many people would see the artifacts that otherwise wouldn't. And she agreed to loan, listen to this, <laughs> William Henry Harrison's original oil painting. <laughs> okay. Um, that hangs in Grouseland. She brought it to Indianapolis. 
William Henry Harrison's hat that he wore into battle, William Henry Harrison's silver spurs, his sword, and the, the battle banner that he carried into one or more of, of those battles. Uh, the, the, the banner that said, strike for your country's good. Hmm. And um, it's an amazing, uh, it, it's an amazing collection that they have there at Grouseland of William Henry Harrison's artifacts. And she, she gave Mel everything he asked for <laughs> and brought it to Indianapolis. Wow. And, and, and it was, a, it was a superb exhibit. Um, and um, the, the, the um, NRA gives out awards for, uh, for their exhibitors and, and, and Mel's exhibit uh, took five awards. Wow. Um, from the NRA. That's incredible. Two of them went. Two two of those awards went to Grouseland, by the way. Oh, that's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it, re- it was really neat to be involved with it. Hmm. Um, absolutely. So, I I, I, I guess um, you know this this all goes to relationships and it goes to people. And um, Lisa Ice Jones did a great job and. Um, we're, we're really great, grateful for what she's done. Yeah. And, and Grossland too. It took, it took the Grossland um, board of directors to say yes to this. Right. So then so, how does that lead into then the historically significant display of, of Indiana uh, history that's coming oh, later this year? Yes. Th- thank you for that prompt. So um, while Mel, Mel and I are in this meeting, it, it's coming to an end, and, and, and Lisa Ice Jones um, is agreeing to this, um, at least agreeing to ne- take the next step. I, I made a comment. So, so Grossland just underwent a $1.5 million restoration of that mansion. Wow. And, and so uh, let me just describe the mansion, if you will. It, the, the walls of that mansion are four bricks thick. It's built on a limestone foundation and it's two and a half stories tall. And it's got the architecture of Philadelphia there on the Wabash River. It was built like a fortress to withstand (laughs) sieges, to withstand attacks yeah, and protect William Henry Harrison's family in case the Indians um, did attack. There are uh, uh, there are portholes in the basement to shoot from if needed. So anyway, this this Grouseland just went un- underwent a nice and it's beautiful. The architecture and the furniture inside is is it's um, period furniture and the, the 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 home is looking just fabulous right now. Wow! And I made the comment to her while we're in the meeting. I made the comment to her how how great it looks. And, and I had been there before a couple of times and, and, and it was really, it's, it's really outstanding right now. But I said, man, this room would be a great room for a rifle exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lisa's eyes just opened up and she said, yeah, yeah. Tell me more. And, and so I said, look, you know, the Kentucky rifle association owns 
glass cases and they, they loan them out. They loan them out to, um, to museums to display Kentucky long rifles or Pennsylvania long rifles or American long rifles. Hmm. And, um, and I said, I'll give them a call and see if they're interested in doing that. And she said, okay, I'm interested. <laughs> and, and, and so I made a call to Randall Pierce of uh, the Kentucky rifle foundation. And, um, it didn't take long for Randall to, uh, um, to reply to me and, and say, yes, by all means, we're going there. And so the Kentucky long, uh, excuse me, the Kentucky rifle association, their foundation is going to loan us. They're going to, they're going to deliver the glass cases, set them up, let them there for three months and then take them back. Wow. Now, now, inside those glass cases that are in William Henry Harrison's receiving room, there will be 20 hand-selected long rifles that are made by Indiana gun makers. And um, these are rifles that uh, I've photographed them, um, and, and, and I'm going to pick ones that uh, are either um, very artistic or historically significant, or have um, um, distinct regional architecture from from the east or from the south. Ah, okay. And it will be a diverse flavor of Indiana rifles inside of William Henry Harrison's home. Now, th- this is to me this is really significant because this will be the first time an exhibit of this type will occur inside the home of a former U S president. And, and to me, this speaks loudly to our second amendment. And this, um, this is making a now Grossland won't say this, but I'll say it. And, and I think it's a, a political statement that, that bolsters our history and bolsters our second amendment because it's in the home of a former U.S. president. And not just any president, but William Henry Harrison was significant in our history. William Henry Harrison has a fascinating contribution to United States history. He wasn't president very long. Yeah, and that's what he's not remembered for, I imagine, yeah. by for yeah, most people. Well, <laughs> yeah, so he wasn't, in, he wasn't in office very long, and he, and he passed away. But the contributions that he made to this country leading up to his presidency are really quite astounding, if, if you think about it. I mean, he was, uh, he was with Anthony Wayne at Fallen Timbers. Yeah. And then, um, and then he, he had a short military c- career. Um, uh, before he, he was chosen to um, be secretary of the Northwest Territory, and, and, and then he became, he was appointed governor of Indiana Territory, which <laughs> encompassed Indiana and Illinois and Wisconsin and, 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 and part of Michigan and Minnesota also. It was a big territory. And Indiana didn't even exist when he came here. 
it didn't exist as a state. He came here in 1800 and finished that home in 1804. And Indiana didn't become a state until 1816. Right. Yeah. So, so, so now these rifles from Indiana are, um, they're really a salute to William Henry Harrison uh, for opening up the, uh, the United States as he did. And he signed those treaties right there at Grouseland or near Grouseland uh, with Indian chiefs that ceded land to the United States, all of Illinois and a big chunk of uh, Southern Indiana as well. Hmm. And, and, and ultimately, um, ultimately William Henry Harrison went on to, to lead the United States army, uh, which, uh, defeated Tecumseh's Confederacy right. in the War of 1812. Huh. So huge contribution by this guy. Yeah. Especially for the Midwest. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't you don't really see a whole lot of uh, you know, historic figures, perhaps you could say, out of out of the Midwest, but he's he I think at least in in my own experience, um, in history class or something in schools, you know, his, his existence is is boiled down to one of the shortest terms ever as, as as a president. But when you when you understand his legacy, it makes a lot of sense that he became the president. Yes, because of how the actions that he took and the significance that he had for the country in a post you know, war for independence era. He was one of those figures taking a young country forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the, the, the rifles will go into Grouseland and, and the exhibit will be opened on September 1st. And it'll, it will open up after Grouseland's um, annual meeting, which is held right there on the grounds of, of Grouseland. But um, that evening will be the, the first night of the exhibit, and, and um, anybody can buy tickets. And all, all you need to do is contact Grossland and reserve them. So that's that Friday night. And then, then the rifles will stay there for three months. Hmm. And um, if you go into Grossland, you'll be able to see the rifle exhibit. There's, there's a fee for uh, getting into Grossland. But there's no extra fee for seeing the rifles. They're there. And, and, and anybody who goes there will be able to see them um, from a 360-degree viewpoint. Oh, wonderful. You'll be able to see, yeah, both sides of the rifle. In glass cases, they're well, they're well lit. Um, so you'll be able to see quite a history of... Uh, mm, long rifles right there at Grouseland in a very historic setting. I think I'm a little bit biased, but I think it'll be <laughs> the finest collection of Indiana rifles ever assembled. Wow. Again, I'm a little biased. Right. But, yeah. um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I know, I know I'm excited about it. Uh, you know, since you, you started to send me some things about this project in, in its infancy, trying to bring it all together. I'm, I'm so excited. Sure. Now, to see something like this happen, and I, I really hope that this story can and perhaps you know inspire some other folks in other states, uh, very similar in, in, to a manner that that you were inspired, uh, you know, 
in the in the 90s there to get going on this kind of this kind of work i hope that we see more of this happen um this i think bringing this history to people is so important and that's something i loved about visiting the display at the nra show and even though we wanted to film it with mel uh, you can see in the video how busy the display was and that was fairly early on on friday or saturday morning so it wasn't even peak hours for the show and it was hard to film the display because there were so many people. And I think that's wonderful. We, we, we did. Have, we had a great crowd and we had a lot of interest. Um, there's no doubt. Uh, Mel did a great job um, um, with that exhibit. Um, and, and, and Grossland's uh, contribution was outstanding. And um, it speaks loudly for their desire to spread history. Yes. So uh, I, I'm excited to work with Grouseland again. Um, I, I'll be making several trips down to Vincennes, I'm sure, during that three-month period. Um, and frankly, I can't wait till it opens up September 1st. <laughs> it'll, it'll, yeah. be, it'll be amazing. I can't wait. I think so. I think so. And, and look, I, 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 this is Grouseland's first attempt at this uh, type of thing. And, okay. and, and if this one goes well, you know, what I what I anticipate is that um, there will be more of it. Not 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 of um, just. I'm not saying there will be more exhibits of long rifles, but you know, think about what's going to be in there is gun makers from Indiana. But look, why not Kentucky? Yeah, you know, why not Illinois? Illinois was part of Indiana territory and why not Wisconsin? And then why not artifacts from the war of 1812? Right. More artifacts. Why not powder horns? Why not swords? Hmm. Um, I mean, the, the opportunity for historians, for collectors and for Grouseland is I think great. Yeah. We can keep going. Jumping into really the last couple questions I have for you. What sure. what tips would you have to share to aspiring historians and collectors? Okay, so look, I I look back on the last 20 26 years or so and I think, you know, the first thing that I did is I collected books before I started collecting rifles. Mm. And I started to study and it was that first day in, in Asheville, North Carolina. I went to the library and started uh, reading books on the subject. And then I came back and uh, found uh, more books, including Albert Lindert's book. And I used Albert Lindert's book um, for many years. It was my guide. Hmm. And um, so the first thing I think is collect books. The next thing I, I, I would say is... Um, begin a network of trusted people around you because it's those people that have the knowledge that will share the knowledge and will help you along the way. Um, The other thing is um, I think when you're collecting, understand that collecting isn't a get rich quick endeavor. Hmm. It's a very slow process and um 
be patient with it. Um, um, buy carefully. Buy from trusted um, your trusted advisors. Um, um, ask for second or third opinions on a rifle or or on something you're wanting to buy. Mm. Um, and, and, um, give those guys a call, give the veterans a call and ask them what they think. Um, I'd say keep, keep priorities straight because, um, the collecting field can, can consume a person if they're not careful. Uh And, and for me, it's been great having a wife that keeps me in check. (laughs) Um, so she helps me keep my priorities straight and, um, that's all good. Um, I would say get your spouse involved as much as you can. Develop your spouse. Develop his or her interest in, in what you want to collect. And um, get their buy-in uh, before you take the leap. Mm. Um, I would say um, don't be afraid of making a mistake. Um, you know, there's going to be times when you, uh, want to jump and times that you have to jump, um, know that if you make a mistake, it's okay. And don't give up because you made a mistake. Mm. Maybe you misidentified a gun. Maybe you didn't see a repair initially, but a repair was hidden. Um, um, don't be too afraid of it. Um, it's, it, 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 it gets better. Um, read about history, read about, read novels and not just documents. Um, read about, um, the gun or the powder horn you're interested in, but don't just read about the guns and powder horns, read about the stories behind them. So read historic novels. Mm. They help pull things together. Um, for me, organization at home was really, really important. Um, the, the ability to, to, uh, keep your files up to date and organize your files in such a way that you can retrieve, um, quickly Mm. and, and efficiently was important for me. Um, submit if if you're going to collect and write, um, and, 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 and I would, I would, um, prompt people to write, uh, doesn't, you know, start out slow and, and, um, submit an article to, to a magazine. Muzzle blast has been wonderful. Mm. And, um, um, submit your stuff to, 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 to the magazines and see if you can get it published. See if you can share it. Um, I try to give my mentors credit whenever I can. I've, I've talked a long time tonight and there's so many guys that helped me. I can't mention them all. Right. Um, but when you're writing, um, those trusted advisors around you, if they've helped you let, let people know that they've helped you. Hmm. Um, let's see not only your mentors, but your organization. So I've, I, I, I've mentioned the NMLRA. I've mentioned the KRA. Um, there's another organization out here of interest that, that is, 
is um, helping with the exhibit called Beyond the Bluegrass at Grouseland. And, and, and that's the um, American Society of Arms Collectors. Ah, yeah. And, and, and they're, look, they've, I'm not even a member yet. And, and they've, um, they've contributed significantly financially to the, uh, uh, to the exhibit. Um, our Indiana association, um, is, is, has also contributed, uh, to, to the uh, exhibit at Grouseland. And, and what I'm trying to say to a beginner is, Look, these organizations are important to you. Don't forget about them, and 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 um, give them credit where credit is due. Yeah. And um, I think that pretty much covers my my advice. I think that's I think that's some great advice. I mean, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I mean, we've we've gone from watching Fess Parker to to finding finding fest parker really in a in a long rifle in an antique shop to to publishing your book and now participating in these these exhibits and um you know i think if somebody's been listening this long they can really learn from and and take that advice to heart for sure good deal i hope so and then if somebody is you know out there and they've enjoyed this conversation they want to find out more about your work where can people go to find that to to find some of the photographs you've been talking about and to learn a little bit more so um my book is a great place uh, <laughs> <laughs> i agree read. okay so um uh, the, the the book has um i was kind of overwhelmed with uh, um, the early demand of the book and 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 um, they sold very rapidly, uh, much faster than I anticipated. And I, I didn't advertise, um, I didn't pay for one advert advertisement to, to promote the book. Okay. So, uh, the advertisement that, that really launched it came from the national muzzleloading rifle association. And it came from the Kentucky rifle association uh, and and those two organizations, um, well, the other one was the Indiana Antique Arms Association also pitched in, and they, they advertised it. Uh, but the way to find it now is um, through my website. And, mm-hmm. and I have a very simple website, and it's indianagunmakers.com. And so if you go to that website, um, my name and phone number uh, and my email address is listed. And if, 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 if I can ship you a book, contact me and I'll get your name and address. You send me a check. Um, and the book, by the way, is nine, $90 a piece and $10 for shipping in the U S and, and, and I'll ship you a book as soon as I get your check. And I, it's, not paid. It's not a paid advertisement, but it is seriously one of my favorite books. Uh, I think I picked it up at the the Lawrenceburg show that Mel and Frank House put yes. together. Yes, uh, I think that was the first time I was able to yes. actually meet you in person, <laughs> and yes. I was so excited for that book because I live in Indiana. And my family's been in Indiana for several generations now, and yes. and being able to connect family history and muzzleloading history to 
the state that you live in is is really a wonderful and, and enjoyable thing to do. So I, I thank you so much. I mean, I, I paid for my book. This isn't a paid endorsement in any way, but but thank you for for making that book and for the rest of the work that you've been doing, Jeff. Because it's uh, I'm just one guy, but it, it's really fueled a lot of of passion in me uh, for Indiana history and Indiana gun makers. Good deal. I, um, uh, uh, that never gets old hearing. That's Good. for sure. Good. And, 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 and look, I'm really glad you brought up Mel's uh, show uh, because Mel shows was my biggest show and, and 60 books. I, I came home with 60 books less after that show. Wow. And, and in fact, um, in the middle of the show, I had to go back home and, and, and resupply my books for the next day. <laughs> and, and, and Mel gave me a front table at that show. So everybody walking through the door, um, saw, saw my table with, with a book on it and with, with some Indiana rifles display, including you. So <laughs> yep. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> I'm happy yeah. to. It's been good talking to you. And again, thank you for doing what you do. Well, I really appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, I, I really feel, and I've really experienced a lot of the same community aspects that you, that you talked about. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad to continue to get that message out. Um, I think something I hear quite a bit is, is people think that muzzleloading is is standoffish or or it's difficult or, you know, people are going to make you feel dumb if you don't know what it is. But I think the more we can, we can share stories like that, the more engaging that we can make things. And I, that was just really great to hear from you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Very much appreciated. I'd like to thank Jeff again for taking time out of his day to, to chat with me and, and really chat with all of you at home about this, uh, you know, in his passion for muzzleloading. I think coming away from this episode, having just hung up, Uh, on our call here with Jeff really the passion that Jeff has for muzzleloading and for history really really shines through to me at least after this conversation Uh, there were a lot of twists and turns but it was really nice to hear a story of from somebody like Jeff who was interested in muzzleloading kind of watching Fess Parker here but didn't really get into the community until he was a young adult there at the age of 33 I think that's just really encouraging for me to hear and I I hope it's encouraging for you out there it doesn't matter when you get into muzzleloading what matters is that you enjoy it uh, and that you participate and that you you have fun that's that's really what it's all about I think and and in that having fun like we heard from Jeff we have uh, so much opportunity to preserve history and carry it on for another generation and learn a lot. Uh, that's something I find myself coming away from conversations like this with Jeff is, uh, you know, I kind of live, eat and breathe muzzleloading. It feels like uh, most days, but I still come away uh, from conversations like this, having learned something new. Uh, it's the kind of thing I, I really enjoy and I hope that you have as well. As always, we'll have links to a bunch of the things discussed in this episode in the show notes to go along with this episode. We'll also have a blog post at ilovemuzzleloading.com with some photos and some videos of Jeff's work for you to check out, as well as the links uh, to things like Beyond the Bluegrass, Jeff's book, and some of the other collectors and their works 
that have helped Jeff along his own journey. Because I think Jeff put it really well here in this episode. You know, there's a community here of people. They give to you and you give back in due time. And I think that that is just a, a really fantastic way to, to put and, and describe the muzzleloading community. I don't care what your interest is. If you're a historian and a collector like Jeff, or if you're out there mucking through the woods uh, in your moccasins with your flintlock, that community is still there and, and they all share very similar values. And, and if nothing else, they share a passion for seeing this carried forward. As we look to summer of 2023 here, I'm excited about one beyond the bluegrass um, at Grouseland down there in Vincennes starting in September. But before that, I should be attending the Gunmakers Fair at Kempton again for its second year. It's a long drive for me. It's about 12 hours to get out there, but I really enjoyed my time in Pennsylvania at the first year for the Gunmakers Fair at Kempton. If you're on the fence about this event, please try to make it out if you can. They're growing, uh, I think, considerably compared to last year, and I'm really excited what the future holds for this event. It's not a paid sponsorship or anything. Uh, that's just really how I feel about it, and I'm, I'm really counting down the days uh, till the end of July where we can make it out. Uh, then coming up in August, we have the CLA show, and then in September, we have Beyond the Bluegrass as well as the NMLRA September National Championship shoot lot of muzzleloading going on. Uh, as always, if you have a, a muzzleloading event that you put on or that you enjoy or that you just see being promoted, uh, please send me the flyer, send me some information about it. I put up uh, as many flyers as I can find at ilovemuzzleloading.com for events, for clubs, uh, for free. Uh, there's no charge to it. It's free promotion to reach quite a few muzzleloading enthusiasts out there online. So please shoot me an email at ilovemuzzleloading at gmail.com, uh, and I'll get your flyer posted, usually within the week, to start reaching some more folks. Once again, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.